0: Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon. and today's episode, I have Filmmaker of the Eyes of Thailand. It's an award-winning film um, documentary about this elephant hospital in Thailand, and it's made by Wendy Borman. And the interesting thing about Wendy is, She and I met over social media, just somebody that I had uh, interacted with through a question I had asked on a Google Plus community. Just the back and forth, I had realized that she had gone to the University of Oregon. So I had asked her if she's ever up in Portland, um, maybe we can get together. And she said that over the holidays, she will be in the Oregon area. So there you go. Social media works. You just engage, you meet some people, and uh, then you get a chance to meet Uh, face-to-face, and some amazing things happen in your world. And I think, isn't that really what all this is about? It's not necessarily the end of the journey, but the journey itself. And this is one of those little magic moments where how cool it was to meet somebody just really kind of randomly. And yes, it works. So I would encourage you to socialize and to engage and to try to meet more and more people because it just broadens your world and I can be more stoked about it. But before we start with the episode, you can go to freegearguide.com. That's freegearguide.com. And you get a little gift, which is an equipment list of all the equipment that I use to make a feature film with no crew. Anyhow, let's get on with the interview with Wendy Borman of the Eyes of Thailand, who I met over at the Blossoming Lotus in Northeast Portland. And here we are, the Film Trooper Podcast. So this film, Eyes of Thailand, you were the writer, director, and producer. I mean, this is basically your baby,
1: and I... a camera operator.
0: That's right. I'm sorry, you mm-hmm. should not over, overlook that. And um, you know what? Just let's cut to it. Like, how did <laughs> how did this film come about? I mean, how did you even decide like this is the topic? And mm-hmm. um, and for and again, for those of you who don't know what Eyes of Thailand is, and, and somebody who's like um, I'm in the elevator. How would you pitch it to me? You know, I had no no idea what it was about.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I think every filmmaker should have their elevator put, pitched down. So I love that you asked that. So The Eyes of Thailand's about an elephant hospital in Thailand, and they build prosthetics for elephants that step on landmines.
0: There you go. That's pretty quick. Have you ever read this book? Um, I think it's called, like, Selling Your Story in 30 Seconds. It's a really short book, but it's really... It, sorry, to get on a tangent here. No, but I really, haven't
1: read that, but I love that idea. But it's
0: a, it's a book that crafts basically about the pitch, about gets it into, like, your one-sentence, you know, tagline of your film, and it shows how to break it up. Like, when you, if you go into a pitch that's a little more casual, mm-hmm. to, like knowing your st- all, knowing your story in and out and all these different ways that you have to present it that so you have it in your back pocket that you've prepared mm-hmm. enough knowing like, okay, this is more of a casual situation mm-hmm. so I don't have to go into more of my rehearsed speech or my elevator speech right. and stuff like that. Right, and
1: you refine it based on your audience. You know, you yeah. I. it took me a couple tries at cocktail parties and networking things to really hone down to these are the tag words that get people to go, oh, that's interesting, I want to know more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you... That's what you stick with. So, you know, I was like, a quest about a woman, and I eventually said, nope. Right. <laughs> Animals, <laughs> elephants, landmines, Thailand, in and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to know more, like, you oh, don't. Oh,
0: interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. And then, then you can go into something more of a emotional hook, I guess, because it's right. like, um, I mean, because honestly, you could do something like, well, the film is about, This is me. This is my version. (laughs) Like, somebody says, well, what is Eyes of Thailand about? Like, well, let me ask you something. Do you remember Dumbo? (laughs) Yes. Because can you imagine if Dumbo stepped on a landmine and blew off his little leg? No. Well, you should probably check out Eyes of Mm -hmm. Thailand because not only will that get at your heartstrings, Mm -hmm. but don't worry. Just like Dumbo... This is where, you know, he got separated <laughs> he, from he his can, mom. He can
1: fly. <laughs> he can fly.
0: Like, uh, these real elephants fly in a different way. Mm-hmm. And you got to check out Eyes of Thailand.
1: Boom, Thanks. There's our, it, there, there you go. Is. And you started with a question that yeah. got people engaged. <laughs> well, and I brought in a producing partner on the Eyes of Thailand because I'd been pushing it forward till 2010, so almost three years on my own, and I just got too exhausted to do everything. And I yes. knew I wanted to come be able to focus more on the directing elements throughout post production so I needed to bring somebody else in to help me with the business plan and pitching to investors and that sort of fundraising strategy and we're really good match because he talks about the film differently you know
0: his name's
1: yeah Tim van He's based producer. in L.A., yeah, and we're really good balance because, you know, he's from Minnesota and watches football, eats steak, drinks martinis, uh, 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 exactly. <laughs> and we're at a vegan raw restaurant. Yeah, I know. Sure. And Everyone right across, came from yoga. Because
0: you know? right across the street we've got uh, and there's...
1: Which I love McMinimums, oh, but, hey, you know, you sometimes nice. I want a kale nice. salad.
0: There you go. Nice. Look at this gigantic uh, cop Beautiful. salad. Beautiful. Come on you. in. You can, you're in there. Thank you. Hey, thanks. Thanks. Okay, we're back, but um, we just spent some time eating lunch <laughs> and talking about how women are such great planners, even in high school.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. We're born producers.
0: <laughs> and Wendy took enough time I let her eat so I can blab about my story so that you guys wouldn't have to re-listen to it. And um, so we're back to you. So let's start... This is good. Okay. So we just kind of went into the eyes of Thailand, but I'm going to reverse the clock a little bit. Okay. Because every great story has to have like that beginning, the ordinary world, like where did it start? And then they have this moment. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it at you. What was your ordinary world like, meaning where were you born and <laughs> where does it all start? Where does
1: it all start? Um, well, I was born in Akron, Ohio. And Okay,
0: we're gonna turn it off yeah. right now. No I'm just kidding. <laughs> I
1: know, right? Wah, wah. I was only there six weeks, so it was oh, not okay, so bad. Okay. Um, but I grew up just loving dance and theater and singing, even though I don't sing very well. And I was always a bit of a performer.
0: Okay, wait, wait, we got to back up. So even f-
1: before, before that, that okay. because
0: this is a good moment. Do you have any recollection of an exciting incident that made you? be turned on by the arts?
1: No, I I don't. So it was probably very like foundational from my parents. I know I was in ballet classes really early just because my mom had done dance. So I think I was three or something like that when I took my first ballet class. But I was actually just going through all these old photographs with my parents because my gift to them for the holidays is this family photo wall. So we are like digging out all the photographs from, like, great-grandparents and, like, that sort of stuff what to do great it. What a gift. Thanks. So put them out there. Don't get them in boxes. So we were going through all this, and I had to pick one photo of me as a kid, and, like, everything I was looking at, I was such a ham. Like, I'm always, like, posing somehow or, I wish like... you could see that. <laughs> it's
0: just the world of radio podcast. Yes, but...
1: you know, like, popping the hip yes. and the hand on the hair and um, jazz hands. And I was always in crazy costumes, just on my own and not for any dress-up reason. And my parents just let me get away with that. And when the, all the cousins would get together, I would orchestrate talent shows or write a play or we'd have a lip-syncing contest. So I was always doing this. But to my parents, um, in their infinite wisdom, when I went to college, they said, we're not sending you to college to be a waitress. You need to have a backup plan. So I couldn't be just an acting major. I had to do something else. And I'm glad they did because I was at the journalism school at the University of Oregon. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's how... Now, what... um, What made your decision to go to Oregon?
1: It was the backup school.
0: (laughs) Oh, it was your first school.
1: (laughs) I actually got into Boston University in Uh Syracuse to their journalism programs. Um, And my dad had decided to go back to school for a year because he's an orthopedic surgeon. He did a year-long fellowship on the East Coast. I lived with my grandmother in West Lynn, Oregon. That's Um, where your parents live. Yeah. So I was there for my senior year. And at I got into all the schools, but Oregon gave me the best deal, and my parents said, well, we can't help you if you go to the other ones. So the, the plan yeah, had good. changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I held out long enough that I got to take a car <laughs> to college. Yeah, <laughs> so at if least. I, I was like, if I'm going to University of Oregon, I at least have to have a car. So they let me take the family car. So let me ask you, if your family, if you were born in uh, Anchorage, Wait, Akron, not Akron. Anchorage. <laughs> Sorry,
0: I didn't know where I was going with that. So you are born in Ohio, and you were only mm-hmm. six weeks. Where did you grow up, basically, as a young person?
1: We moved around a lot. No. So I moved 12 times before I went to college. And it's not a military thing. My dad just likes to move. So there's like eight states Which... left in the country I've not seen or driven through. Oh, interesting. So yeah. was he
0: like a, uh, a practicing... Wow. Yeah,
1: week? yeah, and he would just you know go to medical school here, do an internship there, do a residency there, do a fellowship there, open a practice there, join his dad there. I mean, it was all over.
0: Having a malpractice here. And
1: there, no, thankfully, no, thankfully. Kidding. That's my sir, yeah. my father.
0: Okay, no, oh, you can take it, please. Thank you. Um. So, yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so that's so you've been. So you ended up in Oregon somehow in your senior mm-hmm. year of high school. We
1: moved here from San Diego, actually. Get out of yeah, here. I was there. Um, we lived in University City for. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gosh, so like fourth grade until sixth grade. And so then seventh grade, we moved up to the Oregon coast, so Tillamook, Oregon. Okay. Um, and then. A lot of Hawaiians up there, right? Yeah, right? There is, right? <laughs> I didn't, you didn't, know? Did I I didn't see them in my classes. Oh. Maybe they were a different year. Okay. There's <laughs> a lot of loggers, fishermen, and farmers and when I was going to school there. And okay. Very pale complexion. <laughs> um, but, so, I went to the University of Oregon and made my own film school between the theater department and the journalism school. Because they'd gotten rid of their program. So, I was a theater major with a directing emphasis, and then I was a journalism major with a broadcast electronic media okay. focus, but then I took all their documentary classes so I could actually work with the cameras, Yeah. and then I did my thesis project by um, directing and producing a 44-minute feminist mockumentary of reality TV shows.
0: Oh, good.
1: Yes. That's, that's interesting <laughs> that's
0: early on. Let me, I'm going to back up even Yes. Take me back. So now we know where your ordinary world was like. You're Not really mm-hmm. ordinary, because you always said you've always been in the world performing, mm-hmm. and then it translated mm-hmm. into journalism. But um, every good story has to have like our main actor or main character yes. um, have a moment where the audience goes, I want to follow this person through their journey, and the, we call this the Save, save the, cat, the cat, moment. cat moment. Do you have a Save the Cat moment that the audience could be like, okay, I like her, I don't have one. I, I think I gave one up <laughs> saying that I bullied some kid. So I was, the, <laughs> I was yeah. the antagonist.
1: I mean, I wasn't... I was fairly bossy. And if we're going to quote Sheryl Sandberg, then I had great leadership skills <laughs> as yeah, a, kid, a kid. I had great leadership skills. So amongst my friends and siblings and neighbors, like I was pretty much calling the shots. But because I was the artist type in school, like, I was fairly easy target, even though I wanted to be performing and student body president and, you know, all those grand ambitions. I didn't get to, like, save a kid who was being bullied or something like that. But I... The thing that's coming up is my parents dog that they had when I was a kid. This was the let's see if we can be good parents dog. Um, She was an Irish setter and she had a litter of puppies Um, and my mom had just had my brother so she was always swaddling him up in little baby blankets so I took the extra baby blankets and I swaddled each of the puppies and put them in corners of the box so they were easy for the Irish setter mom dog to find and then Aww. she would of course nuzzle them out to get them out of the blankets and then I would wrap them back up and put them back
0: <laughs> that's adorable so, well there you are that's that's one of the better so, um save the cat moments we've had I swaddled
1: Irish setter puppies that's my moment <laughs> I think it's actually
0: it's really interesting because when we dissect somebody's story you can see even at an early age where all that stuff sort of foreshadows later on because here you're sharing a story about mm-hmm. taking care of these little puppies so now we fast-forward to, you know, now you're in college, now you're uh, working. But, oh, you got something. But
1: I have something else, because to balance out the puppy story... Oh, you,
0: you hit... What, you kick No, you kick I was one?
1: always running away. <laughs> I, like, there's a, another photo of me running away with my bare essentials at, like, age two or something. So I had this bag, and... And a bonnet and a sweater, and I had these little tennis shoes. And in my bag was like a can of Coke. <laughs> and I was gonna, I was like running away. I don't think I had a destination. I was just mad, so I was like, "I'm out of here." Is it, well,
0: isn't your dad move around all the time, right? Exactly.
1: So, well, so see, I'm started, and yeah. now I'm a gypsy pirate filmmaker. I go wherever I, you know, the project I mean, takes me. So that's
0: something you said about that. Well, let not say balance it out? You still be. Have a, a moment of like beautiful <laughs> humanity and caring for like a I was nurturing, nurturing, and then
1: I. <laughs> <laughs> You're off. Oh, thanks. Thanks. And then there was the I'm out of here.
0: Sure. Because for now we have your ordinary world. Mm-hmm. We know what your save the cat moment is. Mm-hmm. You have a not really an inciting incident, but you do. You must have an inciting incident mm-hmm. that said I want to make films. Mm-hmm. So what was that incident?
1: So my click moment, or my inciting incident moment, was uh, I had. I did two study abroad programs in college, one for the theater department and then one for the journalism school. So theater took me to London for eight weeks, which was amazing because this was back when I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll be a theater director. And instead of reading a play and talking about it the next morning, we saw a play and talked about it the next morning. So I saw 40 shows in two months and I saw the best theater of my life. Yeah, that showed me, like, what is possible, but it also showed me how hard I was going to have to work if I stayed in theater. And then the next year, I had a study abroad to Ghana, West Africa, because I was also in a West African dance company. So it gave me an opportunity to do some dance, but I got some journalism credits out of the way, still got to travel. And my internship was to be an assistant director on this television show over there which is called The Things We Do for Love (laughs) and it's like the OC or 90210 or you know (laughs) there's no vampires or anything but it's like that sort of age group for teens to watch and one day the director was sick and he handed me the script and he said you do it today (gasps) so at 22 I directed a TV show in Africa oh my gosh and I came back saying that's what I want to (laughs) do
0: that is a great story thanks see that now here's the thing too um Every story has, like, you know, usually, like, a, a mentor. Mm-hmm. So do you have, like, a wise or wizard or a um, somebody that you can point to? Like, you I don't know have
1: one person mm-hmm. that I go to. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, we find the mentors or we find the teachers, depending on what lesson we need to learn. Um,
0: What's that saying? The, um, the when teacher... When the student's
1: ready, the teacher will appear. Yes. That, yes. I guess it's true. Um I had two wonderful, intelligent, beautiful, creative professors at the University of Oregon. And one was um, Professor Bishop in the Honors College. She did um, literature, but she would let me write about what I wanted to. Like, I didn't want to just do a character analysis for Wuthering Heights. Instead, I wanted to do a script analysis between what happens when you turn... Wuthering Heights, the novel, into Wuthering Heights, the film, because it's been done like 50 times. Mm -hmm. She let me do that. And then she was my thesis advisor, and we still have coffee and stuff. So she was great for that. And then I had another professor in the journalism school. She's an adjunct professor named uh, Professor Rebecca Force, and she's the one that really pushed me creatively to... um, To work with all the video cameras and stuff. I mean, this was like intro broadcasting like 101 of like, here's how you put a mic on. Here's how you set up a three-point light system. here's You know, that sort of stuff. But she really encouraged me to not just be in front of the camera, but also be the producer behind the camera. Very cool. So later I brought her back as one of my thesis advisors also because it's like, these two ladies... Bring him in. Of course, we met. <laughs> so
0: that so let's get, so you what we've done is we found out your mentors uh-huh. and then you um, what was like give me a little of the IMDb your your history of like mm-hmm. what was the first project like I'm gonna make this film and um,
1: well I actually took a bit of a detour after graduating because I was told that film schools don't take you seriously till you're 25 so I had to buy two years right so I did teach for America I taught middle school drama and dance in the South Bronx
0: Wow. yeah
1: so which actually made me a much better producer because my definition of chaos is not most people's definition of chaos anymore
0: this is middle school right yeah so this is like like the hardest uh grades to teach
1: and I taught out of a wagon so they didn't have a, their own room for drama and dance. So I had a wagon with a boombox in it. And I would have to wheel it into a classroom with desks and somehow magically teach drama and dance. So when I got to teach, it was cool, but most of the time it was like babysitting, mediation, counseling, you how know. Many, how
0: many years were in New York for? Two years?
1: That was two that wow. time. So I've lived in New York twice. So that okay. time was two years. And I, then at the end of it, I knew I didn't want to be a career teacher, so I was trying to get back into film. And I applied to film school, and I didn't get in. But I was done with New York, so I had contacts in San Francisco. So I moved out to San Francisco, and I got a job at a production company. And they specialize in infomercials. Mm, so perfect. pretty much any late-night infomercial, you know... Yeah, they they did it. I mean, there's like three countries or three companies in the country that do them, and I sort of worked with all three at this point.
0: What's that one? I forget his name, but I watched the Shark Tank on ABC, <laughs> and like the, the first couple of seasons, they had the um, one of the sharks was this famous infomercial producer. Or, um, I don't remember his name. Uh, anyway, I'll Google. I don't it later. watch that
1: show, so like not much help. Sorry.
0: He. Like, he was notorious for just having all these infomercials that you've seen, but he's, you know, made millions or whatever and on it. And he's
1: in front of the camera? Talking? No, he's, like, the oh, producer. So okay. like, And
0: so the Shark Tank just, you know, you you line up, like, f- five, six uh, very famous, wealthy right. o- entrepreneur business people. And they hear and they pitches. Have pitches. Yeah, and they do all that stuff. But he was in the first uh, couple seasons before Mark Cuban took over his spot. Okay. But I was just curious if it was a small... Uh, industry enough that you I'll, had worked I mean, I'll
1: look, because I, I worked for Lieberman Productions, so that was Lenny Lieberman in San Francisco, and they've since been bought by, by Guthy Ranker. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So. so They're sort of like Pixar yeah, yeah, yeah. to Disney. Um, so I did that until 2007, because um, I had used the time to reapply to film school, and I didn't get in for the second time. And that what pit-
0: film school are you trying to get to?
1: USC and Stanford. you know. For Anyway, Stan- I'm, gl- I'm glad I didn't get in because Stanford. now Stanford. I, I know. <laughs> Please. After coming from the Ducks, too, I was like, sorry, Mom and Dad, but I, I have oh. to. Um, so I didn't get in, and it was a blessing because it pissed me off enough to be, well, Spielberg didn't go to film school. Why do I need to go to film school? So I opened my own production company. Um, in 2006, and an opportunity to go to Thailand showed up in 2007, and bam, now I have a film. How is an
0: opportunity? Like, how did you find this project, The Eyes of Thailand? Like, how did you?
1: Well, I was filming something else in Thailand, so I was following a theater company who was doing a fundraising performance for the Elephant Hospital and this orphanage of HIV-positive kids, and they didn't have enough to pay me the full rates to do everything, so. Uh, I had some sort of internal wisdom to say, okay, we'll pay my plane ticket over there. I'll shoot everything for it. Your son will edit it, but I'll maintain the rights to all the footage so if something else comes out of it, I can do that. It's
0: crafty. See, look at that. So I know, business sense uh, there. From,
1: right. the, from the get-go. So I went over there, and it was like a month in to filming. We did a site visit. So here I am following all these actors around to like talk to the Elephant Hospital founder, look at the elephants, and that's when I saw Moshe and Matala, the Mm -hmm. elephant landmine survivors featured in the film, and I just remember having to pause, you know, and turn the camera away and go, is this really happening? Are elephants are stepping on landmines? And Sarita, the founder of the hospital, said, yeah, and I'm going to help them walk again. So I said, if you do it, I'll come back.
0: Okay, so you, obviously, because, you know, it's funny because I... I just saw the film, so I'm seeing, like, the beginning end, but I forgot Mm -hmm. that you, for some stupid reason, like, thinking that you had seen them already with the um, the prosthetics. No, no. No, you saw them raw.
1: Correct. They were, you know, this is a two-year-old elephant hobbling around on three legs, you know, and she's been walking like that since she was seven months old. And then we had this older elephant who, you know, she's almost 50 at the time. I I met her, but... she'd been without her front limb for almost eight years and you just see them and you see such intelligence and personality in their eyes and it was just so moving I it's hard when you're filming because you know you're looking at levels and lighting and shot framing and stuff like that so it really hit me when I came back and had to log all the footage Mm. to shoot this other video for her um And I just remember sitting on my living room floor weeping because that's when it really hit me that endangered species have stepped on landmines that humans planted. And I just couldn't live in a world where that was possible. And I could never write a check big enough to do anything about it, but I know how to tell a story. So it's like, that's that's it. Wow. Let's see where it goes.
0: So then you had the moment as... As as the a, as a case is being someone who's watched the film, just being touched by it, emotionally just going, oh, my goodness. Like, it just sucks you in. Here you were with the raw footage, seeing it firsthand. Um, do did, did you have sort of, like, that rallying moment? Like you said, would you, like, were you restless at night just thinking about the project over and over, or like, how you're going to do this?
1: It was more this, like, fog parting in my brain of going... Well, since you're crying about this, you know, here's all this other stuff, like, in your own personal life that you should look at also. So it was this, like, Ah, fracture moment. You know, if you're into astrology and stuff, it was sort of around my return to Saturn anyway. (laughs) So, you know, like, (laughs) life, work, relationships all sort of, you know, crashing down at the same time. Um... But I knew the film, there was something in the film that if I gave it time, I could just go on that journey and see where it was going to go. And I just trusted that process, because it was five years before the film premiered at a festival, and I had three trips to Thailand, and, you know, I, we, the story went one way, then it went another way, and then I wove it both together, and, you know, I kept finding new alliances and partnerships for the story, and...
0: It's pretty impressive. So, how do you, what was your process in crafting the story for a documentary? Because, mm-hmm. one, you sort of have to capture it. Your journalism mm-hmm. background is as I'm mm-hmm. gathering the facts. Then, at what point, how do you structure it, knowing what your beginning, middle, and end is, what your message or your theme is going to be?
1: Well, I actually had two big trips um, that changed the direction of the story for me. So, in 2009, I got an email from Sarita saying the elephants are going to get their legs in two weeks. Can you be here? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and that was my first crowdfunding endeavor to get enough money for a plane ticket to get over to Thailand.
0: Oh, interesting. So,
1: I mean, I had all my camera gear and whatnot. So I'd called everyone in my cell phone book and emailed everyone and got enough money for the plane ticket to fly over. And I was there for 10 days. And... I hired a local camera guy for two days of it just because I knew I needed another angle of all the leg building stuff because there's just going to be so much going on. Um, So, sorry to give away the ending of the film, but... Okay, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. um, They build the legs for the elephants. They take their first steps. Sarita starts crying, and I think that's the ending of the film, Right. Right. And so I come back and we start fundraising and we get some money together to edit the story together and then two new elephants stepped on landmines in 2010. And so that was another sort of artist crisis moment of like feeling I didn't do enough. The elephants are stepped on landmines because the film's not done, you know, and I had to circle the wagons with my (laughs) friends for them to go, it's not your fault.
0: (laughs) You know, I didn't even think about that where you... Something that you didn't plan on has sort of taken over and you are confronted with that. This is what they call in story, uh-huh. that call to action. It's mm-hmm. when the hero is has their ordinary life and they have to make this decision because mm-hmm. some event has happened. That first they may refuse it before mm-hmm. they have to accept it and go on this this journey, adventure, mm-hmm. to basically fight through all these hurdles and uh, obstacles and and monsters or whatever to Mm -hmm. reach the point of um, like a dark, dark moment.
1: Yeah, you know, it's sort of like my low point came to my, like my call to action came out of my low point, I guess. And that's where we got this second call to action to get the landmines out of the ground that's now in the film. Yeah. So I knew I needed to go back to film the new elephant landmine survivors, and also check in on the two ones that had the prosthetic. But that gave me an opportunity to actually do some fundraising and outreach Mm -hmm. into the landmine community. So they were having a convention in Laos, so I scheduled my trip to Thailand the week prior. So I was in Thailand for a week, and then I went to this convention and met all the landmine experts and got them to talk to me on camera to really understand where are the landmines in the ground who's planting them who's signed the mine ban treaty you know what do we do to to get these out of the ground Um, and then the final version of the film was weaving those two things together
0: Very, you did a tremendous job of it thank you so you should be really really proud I mean it's um, let me ask you because it it's, um, runs over a little over an hour. Is mm-hmm. it considered a feature?
1: It is. and
0: With documentary?
1: Yeah. Um, so it's actually 58 minutes of content, yeah. but credits are, make it 63. Okay. So we're considered a feature for film festivals. As
0: long as it goes over 60 <laughs> minutes? Over 60
1: run time, yeah. <laughs> that was that I knew, but we also knew that we wanted to get it on television for an hour long TV spot uh-huh. so I wanted it to be right around that 60 minute mark so that was me knowing my target distribution platform while I'm editing and n- balancing that with what the film festivals needed so we've since sold the film to PBS and we're waiting for an air date but we don't have to trim it that much we just speed up the credits and then let it roll
0: interesting I don't. before we get too much on the yeah, business yeah. side thing, yeah. I want to bring you back to like the spiritual side of things go for it an opportunity of, so you, five, how many years has, has this taken you?
1: Well, it was fall of 2007 when I wandered into the hospital. Okay. So here we are six years later. Okay.
0: So it's over six years. The film was released in 2012. Yes. So five years of that. But still, just because release of film doesn't mean it ends. There's life of pushing it yeah. marketing-wise. What, um, did you have a moment where... Um, I guess the question is, do you have like the elixir? Like, you've, I don't know if you remember. <laughs> like, the, the idea is like you conquered the this this final beast in the inmost cave, and you have this elixir that you need to bring back to the village to share with them. I mean, did you have this sort of a transformation um, moment that you can identify, like, like how much it changed you?
1: I don't. It didn't change me by having the film done. You know, I think. My growth as a filmmaker and just as a person on my own spiritual, creative journey happened along with the process of the film. Um, So sort of as the elephants were getting their legs, you know, I was sort of getting my legs as a filmmaker, you know, signing bigger projects in my bank account life um, of production so I could roll that over to my sole project, which was the Eyes of Thailand. So... I think we sort of grew together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, interesting.
1: But, I mean, I was already... S- I was i was surprised that I w- got so attached to elephants because I was never really an elephant person ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of a, a serendipitous moment of going, okay, this story, these animals, this hospital, like, it ties into these other universal themes of... What is humane treatment? You know, what does it mean to treat other beings well, no matter whether it's an animal or another person? What do wh- what legacy do we as humans want to leave on this planet, you know? Yeah. Should the U.S. clean up after themselves when we launch cluster munitions on other countries? Right. Or if people buy landmines from us, should, you know, what do we want our legacy to be? Who's responsible for the cleanup, and you just really try to weave in those different things while still following a classic quest narrative yeah. arc. And I always saw that happening, but I brought in a screenwriter to help find the different sound bites to t- help me tell that story yeah. in the edit.
0: Interesting. Now the personal, mm-hmm. personal. Yes. Did you did you ever have a like a private? Moment with one of the elephants that just kind of touched you in a different, like a way. Oh, that yeah. you can
1: all the time, and they well, rem- describe it. How was well, it? Well, and they like, remember me too. You know that thing about elephants never forget? Like yeah. that's actually true. So I'd gone away for two years after meeting them, just you know half a day, and I come back and uh, baby Mosha, the little she's the little elephant, she stuck her trunk through um, the bars in her enclosure to smell my feet. And if you grab the bottom of their trunk and hold it up to your mouth, you can blow into it to, so they can smell you. Mm-hmm. Um, so she inhales and then she blows right back in my face of like, Oh yeah, I know you. And then she like did this, she puts her trunk on her forehead. Cause that's her little like wave. Hello. Greeting thing. Um, and Matala, I, can go up and I talk to her like I she doesn't let me get very close
0: yeah
1: um but I mean I can go down and film her just by myself and she'll just blink at me and you, you know she, we're sort of having this you unspoken a, communication
0: Yeah. this great shot of Sarita Sarita out at the end with uh, Matala mm-hmm. and she's like just holding her uh, small tusk yeah. Yeah. like right underneath her mouth mm-hmm. there's this it's just a great little shot. For a great she moment. is
1: like the elephant whisperer. I yeah. mean, and she grew up with a lot of illnesses in her personal life. Yeah, I didn't. I saw her walking around with a cane. Yeah, so. and I just couldn't find a way to bring that up in the film. So mm. it's sort of been like a side point in Q and As and whatnot. But she was born with a heart condition. Um, And now she has MS or Ah. lupus. And, I mean, like, the diagnosis is always changing just um, based on what the conditions are. Uh, But I've seen her go from walking with one cane to two canes to now a walker. Oh, no. And, you know, my fear is we have to find a way to fund this hospital to keep it open after she passes away because
0: she's the spirit she,
1: yeah know. she founded it herself you know she's the driving force behind it um, she's got board of directors and stuff but that's the problem with a lot of nonprofits. you know do you have that yeah. staying power after your founder yeah. passes away or retires um, and so that's one of the other points of the film just we need to tell the world about the work that's happening at the FAE Elephant Hospital so people can find it and support it
0: now that you've done the film do you feel sort of um, perhaps maybe like a lifelong commitment to it like it's it's almost like um, in in a sense that you'll always be connected that when something happens the the growth of it or I don't know the development of it it, is in jeopardy like it's it's one of those things you realize oh my gosh I'm Mm -hmm. I'm connected I'm Mm -hmm. I'm indebted or I have to be part of this forever you know
1: I think I'm always going to be emotionally connected to the hospital, but um, sort of fortunately, unfortunately, um, I just have the rights to do this film. Uh. Sarita did not want to give me the rights to her life story or to write a book about her okay. or anything else. Um, so it's one and done from the business perspective, yeah. which I've chosen to look at it from like very freeing, so that way I don't have to just be the elephant filmmaker for this <laughs> elephant hospital. You know, I can go on and do other things, and right. I don't just have to be pigeonholed as an animal filmmaker. Yeah. You know, I care about animals, and I'm a vegetarian, and I've got that stuff right. going on, but it's, I don't just want to be an animal rights filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to do a narrative, and I want to do a mobile app, and I want to do all these other things, so.
0: Transmedia, entrepreneur, just a need to be expressive mm-hmm. and just make stuff.
1: Yeah, and but all my projects have some sort of like social justice yeah. like human rights environmental conservation sort of slant to them anyway so let's get into that
0: a little mm-hmm. bit where before we do that I want to make sure we're not running out of time for you we looking at here
1: I think we're good yeah
0: okay yeah okay cool so where does that come from the, the need to be um, socially engaging in terms of social mm-hmm. uh, movements and social um, rights and mm-hmm. all those types of things
1: well, being the product of a doctor and a nurse for parents, like the sort of care for other humans, like human dignity, like that sort of thing was always instilled in us. Um, and when I was 14, the whole family volunteered at a hospital in St. Lucia in the Caribbean. And so like my dad was doing surgeries for people and my mom was working as a nurse. And, you know, it was also implied that, well, kids, you're volunteering at the hospital store and, you know, right. these other things. Um, So I was always doing environmental stuff like planting the trees with the Honor Society and, you know, these other things. But the big eye-opener for me was when I got involved in the Vagina Monologues Mm -hmm. in college. So I was cast in it. I wasn't really acting anymore, but, you know, I got cast in that production. um, And then I ended up directing and producing the play the following two years as fundraisers. And so I got really connected with arts somehow supporting these other call to actions and being fundraisers for other entities to sort of take the message further and then I did Teach for America so that's a sort of social justice educational equality thing so it's been a winding path but I think it all comes from a sort of intrinsic place of we're all interconnected and if we all helped each other we might be in a better place Right. if everybody does their part you know
0: the value your value which is again which comes down to the essence of that is like what value do you provide others mm-hmm. in anything that you do and it's when we die that's pretty much like you said that's mm-hmm. all that matters is what value does this person bring you know and,
1: and I love how you say that because I just did um, wrote my personal mission statement you know <laughs> I did the, it's this little exercise and it was an equation of like your your gifts plus your passions plus your values is your personal mission statement so I reflected on all the things that I'd done prior and where I want to go in the future. And so do you want to hear my personal mission statement? Yeah. Okay. So it's, I use my gift of storytelling to produce film, theater, and dance works that give a voice to the voiceless and promote peace, justice, and equality.
0: Wow. Um. I don't even know where mine is. Like,
1: <laughs> I know. I had to write it down, and it was like a work in progress for like two weeks before I published it on social media.
0: I think that's really f- fantastic. Use your skills and your talent to basically give voice to the voiceless. And, you know, it's funny. You go online. I've I heard, like, there's really two things you go online for. is one, to be entertained, and two, to f- solve a problem. You know, mm-hmm. this is why <coughs> Google's what they are, because mm-hmm. somebody's writing a. You know, a question, mm-hmm. you know, how do I make, you know, lasagna or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like there's from that small to something that's mm-hmm. big, like, how can I help? Or uh, mm-hmm. like, there's all this type of stuff. But then if you do it in an entertaining
1: way. And that's the thing. Yeah. That's why I want, you have to tell a good story always because nothing's worse than somebody who's not a storyteller getting in front of a room full of people (laughs) or filming themselves trying to tell you how to do something and everyone's falling asleep or you just skip it you know yeah or on youtube i mean if you get more thumbs down than thumbs up then you know you're you're not quite doing something right right. so i think there's a craft in the story it's fascinating because
0: do you ever get this place um i don't know you get those down moments of just being an artist oh yeah I think, think just, we all
1: do. We're all neurotic, sure. <laughs> like artists. I get a, I have a friend.
0: He, he says he wanted to make a shirt. It was just like this little guy with his head down, <laughs> and it just says
1: bah! Mm-hmm. and it says, "I'm an artist."
0: Yeah. It's like this moment of like realizing, like, ah, oh, crap. Like you know, it's like a curse. Like, like, whatever you do, you're gonna always have a need to create, 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 create. Mm-hmm. And you might tell yourself, you're like, I gotta get a job.
1: And I had to have this conversation with my parents because until The Eyes of Thailand was out, and then I had another film that came out at the same time it was called the big picture rethinking dyslexia yes and that went to Sundance like all in the same year this and is 2012 yeah so I had both like in January we had the dyslexia film out and in April we had the eyes of Thailand out so it was sort of a boom year last year um but until that happened, my parents were like, why don't you go to law, law school? Because I don't want to be a lawyer, but you'd be a great lawyer. I'm like, I've already chosen what I want to be when I grow up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but they relaxed the minute the film got into something they'd heard of. So they were like, oh, okay, she's going to be okay. You know, we've only been worrying about her for how many years. But That's really okay. funny.
0: My father's an artist, you know, so it's like... Mm. I'm going toward the other extreme. Like, he was almost too loose. Like, hey, man, you
1: know, hit me. No, nah, it's like
0: a hippie. Or anything, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, hey. Go do
1: it. Just be. It's yeah. like, you know, that's the man. Let's just do this. Man. Hey, no, he doesn't <laughs> talk like
0: that. But it's, like, it's, 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 but it's funny because, um, you know, I was at a time when uh, the independent film world was like, we're all chomping off the bit to, mm-hmm. like, follow a few that actually mm-hmm. had made it. Mm-hmm. So you're following, like, this dream that every, just a few have actually done it. And it was only to the, you know a couple of years ago that I was like, I got to really learn business. Yeah. And so there yeah. was this need because it, I had to look uh, elsewhere for the guidance. Not to say my dad wasn't the most business savvy, but it wasn't part of like those uh, conversations. Uh-huh. You know, his is he was always about spiritual and art. Because uh-huh. you know, he met my mom in the Vietnam War when he was stationed in Bangkok, mm-hmm. and uh, he really fell in love with all the. Um, you know, Eastern philosophy, the, mm-hmm. the spiritual nature mm-hmm. of the place, and so growing up, that's I—I was just that was my world. It was that mm-hmm. sort of teachings plus artistic, you know, and just hard work. You know, notice mm-hmm. the grindstone and do your mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. So following a system. So just my second life would be business stuff. So it's fu- it's.
1: Well, but that's the best thing that I ever did. I took a business planning class in 2009 because. There's no way we can fund our films just through grants and crowdfunding and things like that. Like, you have to be strategic. And it forced me to really look at, okay, what's my marketing plan? What's my distribution plan? How can I refine these things as things change? Who are my niche audiences? You know, who are my comparable films, my co- competitors? What are they doing that's working? How can I refine it You know, I did the SWOT analysis, Uh the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And that really informed how I developed and marketed and distributed the eyes of Thailand. And it it empowered me with information. So when distributors came up to talk to me, I could say like, no, that's not the direction I want to go. Or I disagree with your numbers. I think the split should be this. Or no, I want this platform before that one. And
0: I, it's, it's interesting. What is your take on distribution companies? Because it's, from my take on it, I look at it going, I don't get it. Like I don't get the numbers. Like when I think Sherry Candler said it. He goes, "If there's no physical goods to ship around, then what purpose does a distrib- distributor have when everybody could just use a mm-hmm. service to reach the world?" Mm-hmm. You know.
1: And we, I definitely considered self-distributing the Eyes of Thailand Um, but we've had two different strategies so the Dyslexia film because it went to Sundance I mean it had a very different track than the Eyes of Thailand that premiered at a smaller festival Um, so it got picked up by HBO before it went to Sundance of course they announced it like it happened at Sundance because that's part of the the behind the scenes Uh, stuff that I've learned like all these deals are in place and then they just make it sound like it happens at Sundance so people go to Sundance not that you shouldn't go. Sundance is great, but like it's who you know before you get there if, right. to be really successful.
0: Let's back up for a quick. Yeah, yeah. I don't want. I don't to gloss over yeah. this because I know you're like, well, I had this other film that went to Sundance, <laughs> and then we're all talking about something else. You're like, and I'm sure everybody's listening. Go, whoa,
1: whoa, 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 Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What's that?
0: What is the Sundance experience, okay. and how did did you have somebody in the inn, or somebody associated with the project, the Delexia project? Look, I can't even speak. Delexia project.
1: Um. This well, it's not about nepotism, but the that film was directed by Jamie Redford, so his dad ran Sundance, Robert Redford. I never heard of him. I'm oh, just kidding. okay. Well,
0: just, uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow.
0: Okay. So, um,
1: so that film got started in 2010, and that's another one of those right place at the right time sort of meetings. Mm-hmm. I was walking for a call time for a nighttime shoot for a pottery barn industrial that I was producing and the camera guy was having coffee with Jamie Redford before our call time and Jamie said I need a producer who really understands how to do an indie documentary get all these releases together and there's going to be lots of travel (laughs) as I walk by and so John Are you kidding me? No, totally serious he goes John like Wendy come over here so I walk over, um, you know, hi, hi, card exchange. And then a week later I have coffee and he says, I love where you're coming from, let's do it. And so that I worked on that film for 20 months while I was also doing The Eyes of Thailand. So I would go from like filming in New York City, last flight out to get... Back to the west coast so I could meet with my editor on the Eyes of Thailand to get ready for a Sundance cut of the, that film and you know it's just like That's this crazy. swirling vortex of creativity
0: Was, was it a given that everyone knew that the project was going to get into Sundance? No, not
1: at all and it's so much of it is based on the timeline too I mean if we'd finished the film a month earlier or a month later you know we may have submitted to a different festival you know for docs we could have gone to Rotterdam right. if we wanted to do something internationally first. Um, I think it helped that Jamie was able to call, you know, the director of programming at Sundance. But doesn't mean you get in. Like, we had to go through the same screening process that everybody else did. Yeah, it had to be good. Right. You you don't just get in. Um, so we had that premiere. Um,
0: And you had the Sundance experience, you were able to go?
1: Yeah, I went and I had, you know, the credentials and I got to go to the HBO party and I got, you know, I got to do things like that. Um, See a bunch of great films. So that was really exciting. Um, And then I basically went from that to trying to find a narrator for the eyes of thailand because that film needed to get done
0: (laughs) okay okay so So,
1: it's constantly balancing but you're
0: removing a shaker and and then making money when you need to make money (laughs) because
1: and then you roll it into the project yeah yeah, yeah. that was my passion project
0: interesting so how did you end up uh getting ashley judd and before we get into Mm -hmm. that um did you work with her personally or did you just send her the files and she she would just send you digital files
1: I went out and supervised her voiceover. Um,
0: Would she be willing to hug me? I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> I, if you ask nicely, probably. <laughs> I mean, she's amazing. I, so. I, we had a really intense several weeks of just trying to figure out who we even wanted to talk to about narrating the film yeah. because I had a checklist in my head um, of the type of person I wanted. So I always heard a female voice because. Sarai so, right, is a woman, the elephants are both female, and women get like 7% of voiceover gigs or something like that. Yeah. In the US, it's ridiculous. So yeah. I was like, well, we're fixing things, I'll work on that one too. So I knew I wanted it to be woman, I wanted her to be intelligent, I wanted her to have a proven track record for animals, and I wanted her to have like some sort of social awareness.
0: She's getting anybody better. Yeah. Amazing.
1: And you put all those things together and it was like ding, there she is at the top and of the remember, list. I
0: can't remember when was when did she do the the movie with the amputee the, dolphin? The, um, it was, that was a couple years it ago. It was that
1: right it was right before it. So that came out, <laughs> I think, in the summer, and then the following February, you know, she was doing the voiceover for us. And I have to give a credit to my producing partner, Tim Vandestieg for getting Ashley Judd to do that because uh, he really took the reins on that. He, We worked IMDB. We figured out who her manager was, mm-hmm. not the agent, because the manager wants to do the goodwill projects yeah. and the manager wants to see dollar signs. So we went through the manager and, you know, we sent them information. She passed stuff along to Ashley. Ashley wrote comments back and we finally talk schedules and I was getting worried because the film had already gotten in with a scratch track narration by me Mm. into a festival so we were going to be at the Newport Beach Film Festival in April but in order to do our final sound mix at Skywalker Ranch and like get all these other things timed like it was the window was like shrinking and shrinking and so the last possible weekend that we could have done it she was available. <laughs> so
0: you, she flew out to Skywalker Ranch?
1: No. I She was in Tennessee at the time because yeah. she's got a house out there. So I actually flew out to Nashville because it was cheaper to fly me out there and put me up at some podunk hotel <laughs> than to fly her out. <laughs> right, right. So I went out there and we were at the Dark Horse recording studio where a bunch of like country musicians, it's like mecca for them to record stuff. So I don't know
0: she liked country. No, you know
1: her mom, you know. I don't know about yeah. That. Um so she well here's a funny story. So I get out there and by the time I land and check my voicemail, I've got a message from her manager saying she's lost her voice. Call me in the morning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're like...
1: I just flew all the way out here, you know. Um, so I get out there, call her in the morning. She's lost her voice, can't do it today. And then I couldn't do it the next day. Couldn't do it the next day. And thankfully, I have relatives in Tennessee because I, on this budget, I was like, there's no way I can cover more on the rental car, more food and hotel and all this other stuff. Um, so the stu- recording studio worked with us on that, but... I was there for four days (laughs) hoping for her to get her voice back and in the meantime i pulled a muscle in my neck (laughs) so i had to go to the emergency room and get muscle relaxers i mean it was like we the fact that it even happened is a story and like a short film all on its own but anyway she gets in to the booth finally on that thursday four days later and she's like wearing slippers and drinking tea and like I've got this ice pack thing on my neck and I'm trying to hide so she doesn't know um, but she's very sweet and so professional and you never know what you're going to get when you work with big talent like that because yeah. they're like working for pennies if anything right? right and so they might get in read it once and walk
0: Yeah.
1: and she didn't she would do a couple takes for each thing on the script and then stop and ask for feedback and you know sometimes it was just beautiful the way she did it and other times I would, would be able to say you know this is building up to a, a explosion and so she'd do it with more urgency or you know like okay we really have to only do 30 seconds because it's time to an animation and we should do that you know so we she was wonderful and it's not in her contract or anything but she still tweets for us and you know we sent her copies of the film and she's tagged it and tweeted Sarita oh, you know I mean it's just like amazing yeah you could tweet her right now I Ashley I'm, gonna, Judd. I'm gonna
0: say Ashley Judd, I just heard you on this film Eyes of Thailand amazing amazing work yeah
1: and she might even retweet you yeah, so.
0: maybe. and then we'll blow it up some more exactly so So anyway it's um yeah it's it's tremendous tremendous to hear you so you as it now my question is Mm -hmm. when i talked about the elixir yeah for other filmmakers listening out there you've quite accomplished you know you've done some stuff what has been the fall or the results of these accomplishments so far
1: You know, it's really mixed still. Like, I haven't... Doors haven't magically opened for me. You know, I don't have the next big project that I'm producing and I have all this money to throw at it and stuff like that. You know, it's not a magic wand that everything's now easy. It's easier. You know, I was able to connect with somebody on LinkedIn because he helped broker the deal for HBO. So I... Was able to pitch him a show idea. Yeah, you know, he decided not to like it before he heard it. But <laughs> he, right, right. I at least was able to have that that call. Yeah, you know, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily have been able to even do that several years ago. Um, it also has helped with other people reaching out just for consulting things. You know, it's been really amazing to talk to other film students. Like, I just did a Skype with some film students in Nicaragua who were focusing on active advocacy films, sort of mm-hmm. stuff. You know, and the fact that they saw the film and were inspired by that, that was pretty cool. So I think the rippling effect is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but its it's not magical and, you know... I'm what not a, dating a rock star or anything now and have a private jet you know <laughs> we can
0: change that I think there's some
1: yeah some there's guy like,
0: over in southeast <laughs> that, What's that bill southeast <laughs>
1: Portland excellent
0: <laughs> so what advice would you give like what what are your ideas about just film business in general like how does an artist how does a filmmaker how, how do they make their stuff and how mm-hmm. do they make a living so that mm-hmm. it's you know just like the, that general question a perspective what is your take on that
1: Well, the way I view a good film producer is someone that has the heart of an artist, but the mind of a business person. And so if you can get those two talking to each other, Mm -hmm. you'll be able to balance the best decisions financially and creatively. And and on set know, no, we have to get this shot, so yes, we need to go into overtime. Or it's, no, we have too many bills this month, so we can't do that marketing plan. We have to cap the budget, you know. Um, It's informed my distribution choices for the eyes of Thailand. You know, we have one distribution company we're working with. And I wasn't expecting to give all the rights to one company, but because I'd done my research their plan matched with what I wanted to do.
0: Who who's, who'd you eventually get signed uh, up with?
1: We're with Filmworks oh, down okay. in Southern California, and Tim Van De Stieg had a prior connection with them, and so he was able to send a cut of the film, and we signed with them pretty much a year ago, and then the film came out on DVD in February, and then all these other things have come out. And, you know, I did the film thinking, okay, we're going to do a TV broadcast, because I don't want to take on the funds to do theatrical release. So we'll do TV, and then we'll do DVD, and then we'll do educational, and then we'll do these other things. And because things change so much, we've had a combination of different platforms hitting at different times. Okay. Um, but to loop back to the film business, I think, like, this is why I love what film troopers are doing is they're really asking creative people to think like entrepreneurs right because you have to have a balance like I don't want to be a starving artist I want to be an eating artist so it's like how do I how do I eat this month (laughs) so I do a balance between bank account projects and soul projects and it's great that a lot of my bank account projects get to be still socially conscious things you Mm -hmm. know um, like dyslexia. That was a fully funded project, but I knew about dyslexia from doing Teach for America and I'm sure I taught kids who were undiagnosed. Yeah. So it was still something I was passionate about, but it makes it a lot easier to do the 16 hour days when you also know you're getting paid for it.
0: You know? <laughs> That's amazing. That's, it's, it's impressive how, you know, you're doing good in the world and- Thanks. I'm making films where I make out with girls that are not my wife. But, you know,
1: i just kidding. And film it yourself.
0: <laughs> that sounds so wrong. By the way, check it's it out. Not,
1: it's not porn, <laughs> although it sounds like one.
0: All my movies have the premise of porn, but they're not.
1: They're not. Softcore, it's a, NC-17. Uh, Don't God, worry.
0: No, it doesn't even go that way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's impressive. Quite impressive. Your work and your efforts. And Thank you. Um, you're right. The, the idea of film for Film Tripper is that is to like making a film product for very little, to and then apply the basic online business strategies, marketing mm-hmm. strategies of, of other successful online entrepreneurs who are doing it right now, mm-hmm. who are living. Anywhere they want to, and working anywhere they want to online, because they've built a um, business mm-hmm. and they sell information products. Mm-hmm. Um, they sell other type of products, to so a very very niche um, market, but they're able to generate enough passive income mm-hmm. that, that allows them to ex- to become experts, and right. they and they get to share this elixir to other people. Right. And so I think the film is getting there because we can make it for less less money, and you have. An, your experience here you can share that knowledge share that elixir and then there's a way to monetize that sort of educational experience Mm -hmm. and um in a book or something
1: and that's i mean that's the tricky part it's like because it's cheaper and cheaper to make a film and nobody wants to pay for content they want everything free you know so and they want it now so i've had arguments with panelists from BitTorrent before, <laughs> and I'm like, You've, we've got to find a way to pay the professionals something to do this, or else you're just going to end up with cat videos on the internet. Right. You know? So how can the people like James Cameron and Catherine Hardwick and you know Steven Spielberg and Catherine Bigelow, you know, how, these are the people who are still raising funds and yes it's harder for them to raise the funds but they're still able you know to make great films and turn a profit so like i think they have to sort of lead the pack a bit for these other platforms that people will pay into yeah but you're right like i have dvds but how many have i sold you know i don't know i'd have to look at my statement i'm sure it's not as many as downloads and streams that we've done right you know i haven't Bought a DVD in like months, you know. So I know I it's know. just it's hard to figure out what the next thing is going to be, and that's why I'm inspired by transmedia because it gives you a different way to interact with your audience.
0: Right, and I call that—I mean, my version of it's like exploitation of the license. Yeah. yeah. So if you control the license, you exploit it, mm-hmm. and if it's done in a creative way, like transmedia does, then for sure, Lance Wheeler has been char- leading the charge on transmedia for a long time, and then you talk to like you know Shuler and Moore is a lawyer who goes no oh, you're just exploiting the license <laughs> it's like no I mean but it's good it, it keeps you that you're yeah. creative and business right and it goes from there I almost th- I almost felt like a, at a certain point like you know music and um, films are going to get to that place like mm-hmm. oh, it's just an advertisement you're you're advertising something mm-hmm. you know else so that uh, the the new wave of a consumer nu- consumerism oh, I'm sorry consumerism, I can't s- thank yes. you that's English, for those of you listening. <laughs> what I was speaking, I have no idea. Um, there's definitely that engagement, that that prolonged engagement, mm-hmm. which is why um, there's sort of a need to like get T-shirts, just brand yourself. Like I mm-hmm. am a fan of you know mm-hmm. Doctor Who or whatever. So so people, the other people are fans of Doctor Who. Like I'm in, I know, I know what you're talking mm-hmm. about. There's a then there's a place that people need to get together to commune to. To share their, their same love for whatever this world is, and
1: there's still something that's really important for live events for these different things. You know, bands give away their music for free so that way they sell out their concerts.
0: Yeah, you can't, fi- re- you can't repeat. You can't repeat a live performance. Right. Yeah.
1: And somehow films don't have that yet. They don't. Because you can stream it off of your television and you got surround sound and you're able to pause it to go to the bathroom so you don't miss anything, you know, like I I decide which films I want to see in the theater and which ones I want to see at home and put on my Netflix queue, you know, so we don't have that next thing for films yet. But I do know that for the Dyslexia film, it had a almost a year run of educational screenings. And it's just now available on DVD. And it's because there are so many Dyslexia support group organizations and just, I mean, public screenings from at libraries and malls and, you know, all these yeah. different things that people just needed to get in the room with the shared experience and then that was like a brain trust and they could help problem solve around that
0: yeah they, they were like you're right two so things being a solve a problem yeah. yeah
1: and i mean the eyes of I thailand we had that experience to some extent because we had a special screening at the united nations in geneva last december nice. so this was for the landmine convention so the mm-hmm. people who can actually change the policy and have their country sign on to ban landmines saw the film you know, so that was sort of taking it to the the target audience at that point.
0: I think that's why film and stories can be so powerful. is mm-hmm. It strikes the emotional chord, which mm-hmm. we are we can't we can't get away from as humans. We mm-hmm. we respond irrationally because we respond to emotions, and if stories can um, make sense of those emotions, mm-hmm. but still connect us that way mm-hmm. um, to do something, take action of some sort. And that's I, definitely the wave of documentaries have changed that way because it's no longer like, here's a point of view, two, two sides of things, you make a right. call. It's they, like, no, 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 here's a strong point of view. At the end of it, you can go here and you can do something. Thank yeah,
1: you. it's... And documentaries, they want to be character-driven now. They don't want necessarily a survey-based film. So you having 30 experts talk about a topic, you know, that played several years ago and did really well, but now you want main characters, some supporting characters, an issue, and, you know.
0: I have not seen yet, what is it, The Act of Killing? Have you heard about this film? No. Uh, What I can guess is it's a very imaginative Way of describing um, these horrific killings in Cambodia about mm-hmm. the people that that per, that perform these executions, the
1: Khmer Rouge yeah, the so education the, stuff.
0: So they were able to um, get those who were responsible mm. to retell the story, but then also reenact it with these ridiculous oh, wow. sort of like special effects Hollywood style done. So I just heard it's um, it'll change your life. So I have to yeah. check that out, but.
1: Talk about cathartic for, like, the audience and the people who tra- go back. I mean, wow. Like your amazing. story,
0: you've done a great job with it because it transforms you. It transforms somebody. If they watch it, you can't not be affected by it. And you cannot feel a little change at the end, even an ounce of it. And those are what makes great stories work. And... The animation you had in there was fantastic. Thank it was you. really well done in terms of uh, illustrating a story, showing that telling per se.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, yeah, fact, it really, you should be proud. Thank so.
1: you. I, I am. You know, the, the proudest moments I had with the film were being able to do the. A fundraising screening of the film at the Elephant Hospital in mm-hmm. Thailand last fall and so Sarita got to see it and all the people who worked on the Elephants got to see it and I was nervous oh my <laughs> gosh here we had, you know we'd won awards at other festivals in the US but you know it's totally different to have the subject of your film finally get to see it um, and she was crying, and, I mean, she leaned over 20 minutes in and was just like, I love it. So I was like, oh, okay, sigh of relief. We, wow. She enjoyed it. The other people who did the work, you know, are standing by it. Um, and so that was really gratifying. And then the second part was screening it at the United Nations and having human landmine survivors, some of who I interviewed, but others who had just had that experience, come up to me crying, just uh-huh. saying you know, thank you for doing this. This was so important. Wow. That's, but but, but within all of that, you know, people were like, how can we screen this in Thailand? And the film's actually banned in Thailand.
0: I can you see know, that. You know, it's yeah. like,
1: so even though you want to get it in front of a certain audience, it doesn't always get there because people don't want to talk about things sometimes. Oh, no, but no. we have to keep pushing the envelope and fighting the fight because if you want to make a difference, you you need to surmount those ab- obstacles
0: I I mean no, I'm speechless you know so <laughs> it's
1: does that happen often I don't no no I know <laughs> <laughs> how long's our lunch been you know it's been
0: long yeah but <laughs> no it's I, good I, I can always make some stupid wise crack you know joke but it's it. the film is just too moving and, and mm, to hear your you. story and to see where, you, where you're at and where you're trying to go with it oh. and to you know because everybody's yeah, everybody is like they think the grass is greener on their side. When they hear somebody like, "Oh, must they have it made? They made something. It was in mm-hmm. awards. They mm-hmm. had this amazing reaction to it. I mean, you know, have the the seas parted? I mean, what what's on the other side?" And
1: no, I didn't get my like amazing Quentin Tarantino, Roberto Rodriguez moment of. I did one film, and then I get picked up, and I've got you know five yeah. offers, and you know, I didn't I didn't have that experience, but that doesn't mean I won't have it. Just not yet. Right. So it's like we have to keep you have to keep pushing.
0: I aspire lower. Yeah. Like I, like I just hope that when people see the film they go, Yeah, you know, they didn't suck as bad as I thought. You know. Okay.
1: That's so, it didn't suck. As
0: bad yeah. as I thought.
1: That's good. That's, <laughs> that's
0: good. That's, if I can get that quoted, I'll put that on the cover of the poster. You know,
1: screw this like two thumbs up, yeah, yeah, five yeah. stars. It didn't suck as much as I thought it did.
0: I think I'll start in sight that way, right.
1: <laughs> didn't they do something similar in um Exit through the gift shop. I think like Shepherd oh. Ferry and stuff were like, "This is the worst art right. exhibit. Never go see it or something like that." And then it <laughs> sold out. All, people lined up around the block. So.
0: Definitely, you can use that a counter. Yeah. I think people have gotten so used to like the sort of the canned, you know, responses that if somebody just hits them a little bit differently, they're like, "Oh, you know, how bad can it be?" Yeah. You know, so.
1: Well, we say the eyes of Thailand is the film that elephants everywhere give two trunks up so you
0: know like <laughs> with, it's adorable uh, we
1: gotta spin it
0: Wow, oh, man it's amazing thank you um, before we yeah. sign off do you have any last word a bit of advice for other filmmakers or something you're trying to do that you're trying to apply to make um, to make sense of this whole crazy world
1: I think it's really important to still remain in a spirit of Generosity and collaboration, because you were able to do a film by yourself, which is an amazing. It's
0: only because I'm an asshole. So. <laughs> and yeah, you nobody didn't have wanted to work friends with me. To,
1: yeah. <laughs> to bring in for hired help. No, but we have a hierarchy in this business. You know, it's like everybody. You do this. You're the art director. You're the DP. You're the gaffer. You're this. Um, so it's pretty easy to get pigeonholed into your track. But within that. I hate the competitiveness that's in this industry of, and people not wanting to help each other. And I think it inhibits everything because if we c- create this culture of scarcity, there's never going to be enough. And if instead we say, you know, I saw this grant application. It doesn't fit for my film, but I thought of you and send it out to some people. Or I saw this resource, you know, thought it could be helpful for your film. Have you thought about using this? Let me introduce you to so-and-so. You know, if we have that sort of spirit... I think that comes back.
0: I, that was amazing. Yeah. That was absolutely amazing. I think you just hit the nail on the head. This concept, this um, belief of scarcity as opposed to abundance. Yeah. And it, I've, in all the years that I've been studying online business, online entrepreneurship, there's this huge movement of such support in that world of business mm-hmm. that they talk about that they go we don't believe in the world of scarcity we believe in the world of abundance awesome. and you get into the world of filmmaking independent filmmaking they're very cynical mm-hmm. like they're they're supportive of you but then like somebody makes a film that's somewhat successful and then soon the sharks come out. The teeth come out. Like ah, oh, this because they got well, connections, or they got this and, and they got that. The
1: minute you say I want to do a film, people see dollar signs and the stakes and the anxiety go up, and everybody starts arguing about rights and licenses and access and all this stuff. And it's like, let, if yes, protect yourself, but yes, I've been burned. But if you come in expecting everyone to take advantage of you, I don't fully believe in the law of attraction, but like if you expect the worst. I think you attract the worst, I and mean, if you at least go in with a spirit of good faith and optimism, then you've got a 50/50 shot of it could go.
0: Yeah, and it's it's finding those right people. I mean, there's there's I don't know whether or not the film industry has. Um, we're in L.A., like it's like you have all the one percent of beautiful people mm-hmm. merging onto mm-hmm. one spot, mm-hmm. but not only they're beautiful, but they're also come with this immense baggage of dra- being drama kings and queens. Mm-hmm. So it's like. You know all these insecurities on on top of that. That's
1: in New York, too, though. I mean, I haven't lived in L.A. I've worked in L.A., but I've lived in New York twice, and it's the same sort of thing. You know, it's like the upper crust people know each other, and then that's above the glass ceiling, you know, and everybody else is sort of, like, hitting our heads on it, trying to fly with the rest of them. And, yeah, there's, you know, organizations that say they want to help you, but... Even that, it's so competitive for like grants and internships and fellowships and stuff. It's like, oh
0: yeah, oh yeah, the
1: creme de la creme get it, and the rest of us go, well, I've got great content. I just need to figure out how to get to that next point.
0: It's interesting, like you said, you have your own production company, or people. Every filmmaker has like their own production company. Yeah. So it's like you know, it's like because everybody has like uh, these are the projects I would like mm-hmm. to make, mm-hmm. and it's hard because you're trying to find that collaborative teamwork to you to become the leader of, like, somebody follow you to help me with mine and mm-hmm. then I help you with yours or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Um, you almost wonder, like, there's enough of this stuff going on. Like, you know, who is the great connector to say, guess what? You are very similar to the causes and movement mm-hmm. of this other film director and you should combine yourselves. Mm-hmm. And and then hopefully, you know, social media is that kind of thing where you can try to f- find those people. But honestly, I always thought to myself, you know, what Film tripper is, this idea to be that connector a little bit, just to bring this discussion and bring other mm-hmm. filmmakers in place. There's another filmmaker that is on the community, um, Jennifer Fisher, and she, her and her husband have made um, this film called... Um, oh, God. Sorry, Jennifer. I just blew you up <laughs> blank. It's just like I can't remember my prom date's name. What was it? Uh, the, It's called... Smuggled. Okay, I got it. There's her, her, the film's called Smuggled. And it was It's very, it's, you know... Low-budget film that, that they made, but they're doing uh, doing all this efforts to get it out to the educational uh, sectors, very much like what you guys had done. Um, so it's one of those things. I'll probably have her, you know, contact you through this, the community and stuff like that. I would love and to. Smart, another smart woman. You know, I think she went to Harvard. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But
1: well, and that's just the thing. Like because. It takes so many people a lot of times for productions. It all comes down to who do you know, and especially if you're a producer, like you get hired based on your rolodex, you know, because you have your job is to put out emergencies and be resourceful. So you have to collect people who do all sorts of different specialties. And so I've got a contact of a still photographer in Australia. I know a sound guy in Boston. I know a recording studio in Tennessee. I know. It, I have all this information, so at any point somebody can say, hey, do you know a guy or do you know a girl? And I'm like, yes, I do. Or I know where to find that information. (laughs) Um, And I think just that synergy of getting the right people together, that's pretty powerful when you get the right team around you for a project.
0: Yeah, it's definitely somebody, a connector, somebody Mm who can bring people together is such a huge skill. Mm -hmm. And vital to success, mm-hmm. and um, I gotta work on that. <laughs> I'm hoping this is you, this this gets I think, it going.
1: I think you're finding people already. I mean, please, well, yeah. I found you through Google Plus because I saw your question is like, well, actually, I do have a <laughs> response to that.
0: <laughs> what was my question? I forgot.
1: Something about like, where do you where do you watch?
0: Where do you consume your media, yeah. your films? Right, and I'm actually gonna compile sort of a small like result from those findings, oh, great. just because of. I was just curious because we we have all this discussion about film we have all this mm-hmm. you know talk but very little do you say well how do you watch it do you go to the theater do yeah. you sit and majority of people says I go to theater for when something's kind of like a big event film mm-hmm. or then I just said everything I watch Netflix and on, on demand only a few people still watch DVD. Only a few people watch Blu-ray. And it
1: depends on the age and yes. the location of the people also. You yeah. know, Facebook is big in the U.S. It's not necessarily big in China because they can't get on it. You right, know, right, right. <laughs> so if your target audience is China, you have to figure out where do they consume their media.
0: Yes. And,
1: and that's one of the reasons I think a distribution company has been helpful for us because... I think the whole world needs to be talking about landmines. So for the eyes of Thailand, we need to get it in Taiwan and China and Australia and Germany and France and Canada, and things like that. Yeah. And they have those companies have connections where they can find connections to get it there. And that saves me the hassle and I can put my energy towards developing the next projects.
0: You're smart. I try to be. <laughs> That's very good. That's Me. very very smart. Thanks. Well, you know what? I'm gonna wrap it up. I cool. think um, I'm not sure sure how long this episode's gonna be, but I'll, I'll cut it <laughs> down or make it in two parts. But I think there's some really 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 great stuff, and I hope that um, you know, if this thing, few people listen to it once, but then it's up there, so it's it's infinite. So mm-hmm. somebody will discover it later on. Like, uh-huh. oh, I remember Wendy. When you know before I know,
1: she was, give me a couple years. Who knows? I like, Maybe I'll have to re-release you. it. I give you
0: one year. That's <laughs> one <it>. year,
1: okay. <laughs> tick, tick, tick.
0: But um, I can again. I can't thank you enough. Thank, thank, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. So this we'll, was wonderful. Great.
0: So we'll sign off.
1: Do you mind if I give everyone my website? While oh, I'm yeah, here? that
0: lame was I. Sorry, guys. That's okay. Go. So
1: the films that we talked about were The Big Picture, Rethinking Dyslexia, and The Eyes of Thailand. And the websites for that are bigpicturemovie.com and eyesoftailand.com. And right. I'm all over Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Try to be easy to find.
0: And don't worry, if you you know find this episode, I'll have it all in the show notes anyway. So I'll have the trailer to the film, all your links, so awesome. all that kind of stuff. So you gotta self-promote
1: in the industry. Yeah, you have too. to. I can't believe
0: I, I was just all like, ugh, and I totally forgot. <laughs> I, obviously I'm not a professional like interviewer journalist. It's because so. you
1: had vegan food and you're all like mellow now. So.
0: <laughs> is that what makes it makes you mellow?
1: I don't know. Some people So
0: if I was eating chicken or something, I'd Argh. I as long know. as it's
1: not turkey, because the trip to Fen doesn't that like put people That's to sleep. That's right.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're like, I don't know, I haven't eaten turkey I haven't eaten years. Meat in ten years. What but does I that think? do? Um, that was, actually it was pretty good. I had a great salad. It was pretty good. tasty. Anytime blossoming
1: you, lotus, yay! I
0: know, not the blooming lotus, the blossoming lotus. So come here, it's fantastic Vegetar- all vegetarian food. Mm-hmm. So, okay.
1: Thank you. Thank Scott. you.
0: And that concluded my interview with Wendy Borman. Listen, if you stay this long, then you deserve a gift. And you can get that gift if you go to freegearguide.com. That's freegearguide.com. And if you stay this much longer, then you really, really must love this. And I could use your love. And that sounds totally wrong. But if you could actually go to iTunes, make sure you have an iTunes account, and leave us a ratings and review. If you leave a five-star rating, I will uh, give you kudos on the next podcast. Again, thanks for staying around so long on the Film Trooper Podcast.